Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. And I'm joined today by Christine Kim and Saul Kadir from Galaxy Research. Hey, guys. Hello, hello. What up? Yeah, we have a fun one today. We're going to talk a lot about NFTs and license agreements, or should I say in some cases, uh, highly restrictive license agreements. The fact that in reality, uh, no NFT owner actually owns the underlying content that they may think they're buying. But before we get into that, and we've got two great guests, by the way, to talk about that in a few minutes, um, Gabe Parker from Galaxy Research and Michael Marcantonio from Galaxy Legal, um, his second appearance on the podcast. Uh, but before we talk about that, let's jump into some quick news. Um, Bitcoin and ETH mostly trading in a range, uh, you know, 24,018, uh, on ETH, um, so, you know, not a ton of stuff happening sort of price markets wise this week. We don't have BIMnet on for that reason. Um, but also a couple other inter- interesting things, a bunch of stuff on the stablecoin front. Uh, Senator Pat Toomey um, is uh, from Pennsylvania, who's actually on his way out retiring, says that uh, whistleblowers have come to his office and reported that the FDIC is stymieing banks in their efforts to expand their crypto work. Um, similar comments to... The Fed is telling uh, banks that they must come and talk to them if they intend to work on crypto. Um, And also a Fed governor is sort of like poo-pooing the concept of a CBDC uh, in favor of the payments, instant payments network they've been building for years, FedNow. Um, I don't know, a lot of stuff happening in the stablecoin world. We just released a great report on stablecoins. It's on our website. Uh, You can see it at galaxy.com slash research um, written by Charles Yu. I don't know, guys, like what what does it feel like at this point? The likelihood of a of a CBDC is I mean, I'm just this is just a temperature check. Yeah, I've always thought that this was an inevitability for years now, uh, just given how much control a CBDC would give a government over the currency of that country. And that it, it seems like it's gaining steam. I don't know. It seems like more regulators are attuned to the benefits for them on that front. The ability to prevent bad actors from transacting with the currency uh, and have full surveillance essentially into the citizens uh, transactions. And it sounds like from the news you shared, Alex, um, regulators are cracking down more on other banks and entities and probably even like decentralized applications that are trying to do their own thing with stable coins, like trying to to. Um, really like monitor and track all the other efforts with stable coins um, and potentially try and like keep it all to one project. Um, make sure that like the only regulated stable coin is um, their own CBDC, which I think is pretty concerning. Yeah, that does seem like a possible outcome. Um, and the, the other though is the that a, an existing stable coin ends up being codified uh, under the under US law as uh, or or existing stablecoin model as sort of the de facto CBDC, um, which we've talked about a lot. We talked a lot about last week in regards to Circle and and their actions they took in response to the OFAC sanctions on Tornado Cash. Um, but you know, before we get into that, we <laughs> got a funny little diversion here. I barely saw this, um, but uh, some new chain launch called Doge Chain. <laughs> um, it's not the same blockchain that Dogecoin operates on. Um, what was the deal here? Saw you yeah. were looking at this. Uh, what is it? Totally, totally. It's a uh, let's call it. It's it's wrapped Doge. And it's EVM compatible, so you can do DeFi and NFTs. Uh, it's en- enabled by Polygon Edge, and it's not actually officially sanctioned at all by the original creators of Doge. Um, it's kind of like a community-led project that has gained some traction. It's picked up five million dollars in uh, liquidity in about a week, and yeah, it's kind of like a competitor to Shib. They they saw the play that that Shib did, being an uh, ERC twenty essentially uh, dog coin. And now we're bringing it back to the OG Doge, uh, which which you wrote about actually, you know, I think a little over a year ago now. 
<laughs> we called it the most honest shit coin, Dogecoin. Um, that's the official title of the report. Um, yeah, what were you gonna say, Christine? Like, you know, everything that's old is new again. <laughs> I mean, that is that is also true. But you said it was it was Polygon who was uh, creating this, Saul. It's using their tech, so hmm. Polygon has this thing where you can spin up a, a layer one, essentially. Um, and so the the whatever protocol that's governing this is saying you can they'll issue wrapped Doge one to one via a bridge for any Doge staked on their platform, and then you can use that wrapped Doge to perform all of your uh, fun NFT DeFi activities. I wonder why they picked Doge. <laughs> well, it's got a great community, um, but I've got to caution uh, listeners here. This this seems a, like a very scammy environment. I did see one tweet that said um, they had written a bot that would automatically buy every token issued on Doge chain, uh, $5 worth. Um, and in 24 hours, all 150 of them rugged um, and went to zero. <laughs> so uh, this is more of an oddity and a humorous thing. We're not suggesting that, uh, at least at this time, there's any kind of durable, you know, Dogecoin, Dogecoin-affiliated L1 uh, emerging here. But um, I don't know. It seems like it's not the golden age for dog money these days. No, but the, the silver lining is at least... Ideally, it'll attract all of that type of activity and relegate it to that unique chain and kind of separate it from the serious activity happening on other chains. That's the hope. It's like a, it's a, a natural quarantine, a self, <laughs> self-selecting uh, yeah. quarantine. Wasn't that what Binance chain was oh, for? Th- that is like the unofficial <laughs> use case for pancake swap coins on Binance chain. Right. Um, so yeah. maybe this will pick up the mantle, hopefully. Uh, yeah, I feel like I'm having deja vu all over again when we're talking about dog money. But um, all right. And, and lastly, before we move to our main conversation, a lot of fallout still happening from the tornado cash sanctions last week in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, a lot of conversations happening on social media this week about the implications of proof of stake um, broadly because of its sort of uh, inherent, inherently centralizing nature um, in favor of regulated custodians and exchanges. Christine, what has the conversation been about on this topic? Yeah, so we talked last week about how different parts of Ethereum's tech stack was centralized. We saw like Infura, um, MetaMask, we saw other decentralized applications really capitulate and say, you know, we're going to abide to these OFAC sanctions. We are going to censor um, and not allow certain transactions that that engage with the Tornado Cash application um, from being processed so that we can, um, so that we don't like get into any regulatory trouble. Um, And this has caused a lot of concern that perhaps moving forward in in an environment where it's no longer going to be miners that are are creating blocks and, and extending the chain of Ethereum, but it'll switch to validators perhaps validators will be the ones to also um, capitulate and say, you know, we're not going to be processing any transactions from addresses that are on the OFAC list. And this has created a lot more conversation and commentary around how do we ensure that Ethereum stays censorship resistant. And the concern, I mean, I think on one one hand, people can think, um, well, you know, miners have always been the actors on Ethereum that choose what transactions get processed. Um, But miners have not necessarily been exchanges. They haven't been um, already like these businesses that hold a lot of ETH. But by nature of the fact that Ethereum is now going to be relying solely on validators for network consensus and finalization, um, these validators are really just deposits of 32 ETH. They're people who own 32, they're at least 32 ETH to be to in order to validate on the network and become a validator. So I think it's it's this conversation around now that we're switching over to a proof of stake consensus protocol. Um, how do we ensure that validators themselves remain censorship resistant and don't, you know, capitulate in the same way that we've we've seen the fallout from the tornado cash sanctions? And um, I, I think a lot of it is going to come down to social pressure. I think a lot of that is going to come down to the users themselves deciding, um, you know, we're going to boycott um, certain 
large staking as a service providers that are deliberately censoring transactions on the network. I think we're going to start to see staking as a service providers who recognize the regulatory issues around being, you know, the person, the entity that is is including transactions in, into a block, the kind of like um, risks that that goes with being that kind of a, a, a actor. Um, we're going to start to see perhaps some exchanges or some other entities stop validating, like not want to be a validator on Ethereum for this reason, for this like regulatory concern. Um, so, so I think the conversation is still ongoing. There hasn't been, you know, too much. Um, there's not there's not like a conclusion to this. It's an ongoing um, issue. Uh, there's a ton of conversation also around um, MEV and flashbots, but we can get into that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, Let before me just we get there. into that, Christine. Yeah, I think Questions. part of the, the the real issue, you know, both both um, both miners and validators, you know, can have some power over transaction selection, but the I think the issue is with miners, you know, being exogenous to the network in so far as they don't need to already have supply and they have to pay for energy, they have different incentives, right? And so validator uh, services, whether they be Lido or an exchange like Coinbase or Kraken, are extremely likely and already we have seen to gather up huge piles of supply, right? And that's a lot different than, you know, big groups of miners, many of whom are abroad and, and they're semi-independent, right? Um, already, I mean, I think as of June, Coinbase was estimated to perhaps have 15% of total staked ETH. Um, and Kraken is also very high, um, let alone Lido, which is, you know, hovering right around that critical 33%. Question for you, Alex, about um, kind of like the concern around censorship resistance around uh, Bitcoin mining, like with more Bitcoin miners, public miners now going to the U.S., um, if they're and, and miners being the ones that are, are processing blocks, like is is the kinds of transaction activity around OFAC sanctioned Bitcoin addresses at all like a concern? Because I, I feel like if it's not really a regulatory concern for those U.S. publicly listed companies, maybe it's not that much of a concern for U.S. based staking entities. Yeah, I think that's a great question. It definitely is a concern. I think publicly addressable companies, right? Um, that's a concern. However, I think a, 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 my guess is a there's a couple answers here. One, I think a significantly larger percentage of ETH validator power than Bitcoin mining power is going to fall into that category as highly addressable. I also think it extends beyond OFAC. And when you know when we talk about the sort of the, the way, for example, stablecoin issuers are going to have a much wider regulatory attack surface than simply OFAC, there could be additional reasons why Coinbase or Kraken are pressured to censor transactions. Um, but I, I, I think it is fair to point out that they're, it's not necessarily fundamentally different um, at its core. To, I, there's also a big misunderstanding here, Christine, right, about flashbots. You were about to get into that. And I think we'll move on after this part of the conversation. But um, something like, w what's the stat? Like 85% of of mined blocks use flashbots today and 50% and of block space is flashbots bundles. Yeah, connecting to flashbots is the most competitive way to earn MEV as a miner, and it will remain the probably the most competitive way to earn MEV as a validator. But unfortunately, flashbots, or maybe fortunately, I don't know. <laughs> the like flashbots is a centralized entity. They are also compliant with OFAC sanctions, and I'm sure that they'd be right. compliant with other regulatory um, laws. And it, I think it's very important to note that. Right now, while most miners do rely on flashbots for earning MEV post-merge, there is the possibility that we could see other entities outside of flashbots um, rise up to, um, to, to connect validators to third-party block builders and give other avenues and like software for which validators can earn MEV. Um, the only concern, I guess, is like how many of those entities will be ready at the time of the merge, because flashbots will certainly be ready to earn MEV. And your your point, though, is that um, flashbots is already performing OFAC blacklisting, sanctions yes. list blacklisting. Yes. And and under the new proof of stake validation, validators have to take or reject whole blocks from from flashbots, not simply pick and choose bundles 
to include in blocks the way miners do. So that if 85%, if that 85% of miners using flashbots is similar to the amount that validators will use, and I don't know, I think we don't have a reason to believe it won't be, that would actually mean that 85% of you know, transactions end up being sort of flashbots approved. So it's already, that's a major, it, frankly, it seems like an even more urgent censorship resistance question than this sort of still hypothetical exchange custody centralization question. Right. Like, I think the question around the exchange and the validators is, you know, for a proof of stake network, you want your validators to be as decentralized as possible. That makes a resilient decentralized blockchain, just like you want your miners as a proof of work blockchain and Ethereum currently to be as decentralized as possible so that like the regulations, the laws in one particular country is not going to impact, you know, the consensus or like the uptime of the network. I think the flashbots question is another really big area of concern that like just taking a step back um, about like how flashbots works now there are there are really two main players there are searchers who identify mev opportunities on ethereum and propose like transaction bundles for miners to then include into a block and miners can see those mev opportunities um, through flashbots so flashbots is kind of like the the hub that connects searchers to miners but post-merge like after proof of stake is after ethereum transitions fully to proof of stake you've got a new player a new um middleman so to speak in this mev earning process um you've got again still searchers and this and instead of miners you've got validators but in the middle you've also got block builders people these these economic actors that take bundles from searchers but also like order the block with regular transactions too and these block builders can choose any relay to um, propose their blocks to and then can get connected to a validator so a relay is what connects validators to block builders and flashbots will be running a relay and all and they'll also be running a block builder as well so like the blocks that are built on the flashbots relay will all be compliant with U.S. law. Um, and there is the possibility that we could see other relays operated by people that um, that are, are entities based outside of the U.S. and hence don't have right. to, to, to abide by the same laws. Um, and it could be we see a lot of social coordination to support um, and to encourage uh, block builders to to start using those relays, those relays that are not flashbots. And but it, we don't have any yet. We don't have any yet. And we have to leave it there, Christine, because we uh, we'd like to see that. But we've got to move on. Let's get into our main topic here on NFT licenses. So I'll set the stage. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday, August 17th. But this podcast comes out on Friday morning, August 19th as does a research report written by Gabe Parker and Michael Marcantonio, who join us now. Um, we looked at the top 25 NFT collections by implied market cap, right? That's the sort of crude measurement of floor price times collection size. Um, and and did a survey on the type, the, the legal arrangement between those issuers and those token holders. So in, in all cases but one, and I'm not going to spoil some of the surprise here for the conversation, but in all cases but one that we found, that arrangement is solely a highly restrictive uh, commercial use license or a creative commons license. In only one instance did we find our owners of the NFT tokens themselves actually uh, at being attempted to be given the ownership, the IP, the copyright for the underlying, uh, in this, you know, in most cases, imagery. Um, but before I get into any more, uh, Gabe, Michael, welcome. Uh, great to have you both. Thank you for having me. This is my debut, so, you know, big moment. Glad to be back. So, Gabe, uh, give us an overview, man, of, of the research you did uh, and, and what you found. What did you look at and, and sort of what was the, what did the like the range of license uh, terms uh, you found look like? Yeah, so I mean, we started off doing just a deep dive on all of the types of NFT licenses, um, mainly to uh, investigate the dynamics of intellectual property within the NFT realm. And out of the twenty top 25 NFT projects, um, there were licenses that ranged from 
very limited to unlimited with no restrictions on commercial use while others had um, smaller restrictions on commercial use. And then we did a deep dive on the various types of Creative Commons license. The most popular one today that we're seeing in the news is the CCOs. Um, and just breaking down to our audience, you know, what do these licenses entail? And we really centered the analysis around the question of when you buy an NFT, what are you really purchasing? And who retains the copyright at the end of the purchase? So those were the key questions we centered everything around. Um, and all but one project um, did not transfer copyright, which was very interesting. Um, and which that, was the one that did transfer? So the only project that made the attempt to transfer copyright was World of Women, actually. Um, so we, we credit them for attempting to kind of break the cycle of not transferring IP to NFT holders. And they did this through implementing an IP assignment agreement within the purchase of the World of Women NFT. And uh, this is the legal way to transfer copyright from the original copyright uh, owner to the purchaser. Okay, so let's well, let's pause here for a second. We're going to go into some of the project specifics. Um, but what you're saying is that the vast majority of these projects, when they sell the tokens, um, the purchases of those tokens are sort of receiving nothing but the token. Uh, they're, they're not receiving any actual ownership of the underlying content. Michael, explain to us what that means um, and, and like what does ownership mean in this context? I don't know, IP, copyright, etc. Yeah, this is critically important, Alex. So uh, in the traditional art world, when you buy a painting, you own the physical painting. You don't own the copyright of the image in the painting, but it doesn't really matter because you can exclude everyone else from enjoying the painting, from seeing the painting. You hang it in your house. When it comes to digital art, the forum in which you display digital art is online, right? It is on the internet. And so the question is, to what extent do you have a similar right to exclude others from enjoying that? And within the context of, uh, of digital content of any kind, it doesn't make sense to say you own digital content unless you own the copyright. There is no such thing as ownership of digital content without owning the copyright for a couple of reasons. But the main reason is if you don't own the copyright to digital content, someone else does. And so we have a system with NFTs in which you're buying the NFT, you own the token, but you are not buying and owning the digital image that the token points to. And why that is a problem is for the following reason. In the digital content landscape generally, before NFTs existed, digital content was freely sold, right? You bought an, a, a song on iTunes, you bought a movie on iTunes, you bought the this digital content, but really in reality, you were actually renting it. You're licensing it, right? But nobody cares because what you're buying is not the actual one-of-one one unique digital content that no one else has. You're buying a copy, right? So when I rent or buy Goodfellas on iTunes, I'm not purporting to buy the one-of-one one original content of Goodfellas that no one else owns. I'm buying a copy. That's very right. different in the NFT space, right? In the NFT space, when you buy an NFT, you are buying something that is sold to you on the premise that this is a unique one-of-one one collectible. It is the only one that exists. But in reality, the only thing that's unique is the token. The token is non-fungible and unique. The image, however, is not unique one-of-one one collectible that only you and only you own because you don't even own it. The project that created that content owns the content, not you. Right. And you license right. it. And so when you think about this for a second, you say, what am I buying? You're buying a token. You're, the token entitles you to, to a license to display and in some cases commercialize that image. Cool. But the problem is Unlike fine art, traditional uh, physical art, digital content is readily transferable and copyable by anyone who doesn't own the token. And so without the copyright, you can't exclude anyone else from really displaying that token. 
So, Michael, what you're saying is the inability to enforce scarcity, right? Whereas there is an implied physical scarcity when it comes to like owning the Mona Lisa. Um, you know, the so we're, we're kind of saying is the right click save complainers. They were they were kind of right, right? Because you yourself have no ability to actually defend your ownership of the vast majority of the the these NFT collections artwork, right? Because you don't own the artwork. The only people who can have the same analogous rights to what you would have if you owned a physical painting are the NFT projects, the Yuga Labs, the Chiru Labs, the right. uh, the Proof right uh, Labs or whatever they're called. They Collective, have yeah. that exclusive right. They have the copyright, and so they can exclude others. But the but the owners of the NFT they can't enforce any exclusivity. We're going to get into sort of why that matters so much, I think, for a Web3 context. Um, but let's talk about what they can also do with the licenses, because there was some big news this week um, and and even, and even last week. We're going to talk about two projects in particular as examples, although in this report, Gabe and Michael go into a bunch of examples of the different types of uh, license agreement arrangements. Um, but this license agreement that these projects, almost whichever one that it is, um, perhaps um, with you know excluding the CCO, which we'll also talk about, they're totally revocable and alterable at the whim of the copyright owner, who is the issuer. And we saw this happen. We saw um, Yuga Labs just this week finally issued what they're you know this new updated license for CryptoPunks. Because recall that Yuga bought CryptoPunks and MeBits IP from Larva Labs last March. Um, and they and they sent out this update. They can change it unilaterally, right? I mean, that's that was a big story because CryptoPunks are the second most valuable collection of, of all NFTs. Um, Gabe, what did you find when you looked at the Punks license? Just real quick. I mean, is this a permissive license? Is there anything like particularly good or bad about the license or the language? So off the bat, you can tell this was professionally written. It's a very long license. I mean, comparing it to the BAYC license, it's a lot more in depth of what does Yuga Labs own? What are you allowed to do? Um, and you know, for the most part, the language for the new CryptoPunks license is is really good because it um, is pretty straightforward. Um, there's two points in that license agreement that explicitly say that Yuga Labs does own the copyright to the Punks art. Um, in addition to that, in the beginning of the license agreement, it says you own the CryptoPunk NFT, um, which is accurate because if you are a punk holder, you do own that token. Um, and comparing that to the BAYC license where it says you own the underlying art completely, um, you know, we'll get into that, why that is false, but... Uh, well, no, let's get into it now because um, I think one of the big problems I have, and we'll talk about Moonbirds as an example of this too, it's one thing we, we do, I think, collectively have a problem with this intellectual property not being transferred to token holders. That's sort of a bigger question as it relates to the promise of Web3. But at the core of, I think, the real outrageousness that we're seeing in the NFT issuance market today is the discrepancy between marketing and licenses. And and Gabe, you pointed out Yuga Labs also, of course, owns and created the Board Apes Yacht Club. Their ownership section of their usage license right they are issuing a license like michael said for usage um that has and, and they the copyright owner can do that but in that license despite the fact that if they were transferring the ip to you they they wouldn't need a license at all holders wouldn't need a license in the license it explicitly says when you purchase an nft you own the underlying board ape the art completely and and that is false correct michael that's just not true at all it's it's completely false insofar as you read the words to mean what you think they mean. Now, the problem is, is that these terms aren't defined, right? So they use a capital art, uh, a capital A for art, but they don't right, define, they do. you know, in a contract, when it's a capitalized term, it should have a definition. So we are left wondering what the heck they mean by that. But any judge would look at this contract or the license, licensing, I use license and contract in, interchangeably, but um, they would look at this license and they would say, okay, that's ambiguous. However, the section two and three that provide a license 
uh, vitiate or, or or obviate the uh, the the any any argument that it that you're actually transferring copyright in the previous sentence because because a license uh, if you have the copyright you don't ha- you don't need a license it doesn't make any sense right the next section or section three says Yuga Labs grants you an unlimited worldwide license to use copy and display the purchased art for the purpose of creating derivative works based upon the art. Um, and your point is that if you own the copyright, you don't need any such license whatsoever. So by virtue of Yuga granting you one, uh, they're obviously, you know, <laughs> only the owner of the copyright can grant a license, right? So they clearly haven't relinquished the IP. It's like me selling you a house and then turning around and say, hey, I'm going to lease you. Uh, you want to rent this house for me? That I mean, that's basically what it's doing. Yeah. So I, I think we focused on Yuga a, a fair amount in this report Partially, or, or maybe mostly, because um, of the top 100 NFT collections, 63% of the implied market cap is IP owned by Yuga Labs, right? It's Board Ape Yacht Club, it's CryptoPunks, it's MeBits, it's the Mutant Ape Yacht Club, it's the Kennel Club, or whatever it's called, right? Like they are the dominant player in in uh, NFTs today, um, and I think. Gabe, your point about the CryptoPunks license, which is their new updated license, you pointed out that it's 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 a lot better because at least it very explicitly states what you do and do not own, and it doesn't mislead about you owning the art completely. It says very clearly that Yuga retains the IP, but you own a token. Um, that's an improvement. I, I guess the question, and by the way, the other side, uh, IP uh, or the license agreement, although does not transfer the IP, um, is also similarly professional in its clarity. And so the question is, you know, did are they just growing up, Yuga Labs, you know, when they created BAYC, they didn't know what they were doing with this? Or, you know, so. how, do we, how do we think about the evolution here? I think once the community starts to familiarize themselves with the punks license, um, Yuga Labs will eventually have no choice but to update the BAYC license. Um, I think that's pretty obvious if I had to say. So you think that the restrictions, these, these, the clarity around copyright will trend and progress and evolve to Yuga Labs holding like the copyright and the IP and that the NFT space will not, like people will wake up to the fact that, oh, this is, this is not true. I don't actually own the underlying art. The, the real value of NFTs is just owning the token. I do think, yeah, people are definitely going to start to question whether they do own the copyright. For those who care about the copyright, of course. Well, Saul, how, how many people do care? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, what's you chime in here? You're an NFT guy, guys. How important is this? This is a non-issue. Okay, people don't care <laughs> about copyright because owning the IP is only relevant if you plan to monetize your NFT in a commercial way. Uh, I don't think people are buying CryptoPunks so that they could tell all their friends. Oh, look at this new IP I just got that only I own and that no one else can use. If you think about the lore of NFTs, like the whole reason why these collections get popular in the first place is because everybody can recognize an ape or a punk. Uh, and this is extends throughout history for art too. I mean, Michael brought up the point about if I hang up a valuable work of art in my home, no one else can see it. Well, it's unlikely you're going to want to hang up anything that no one has, hasn't seen already, right? Like, the a work from Picasso or whatever artists that have a lot of distribution that have been copy and pasted a gazillion times and referenced in classes that's what you want to show off because everyone's going to recognize the artist you're not going to show off a piece that no one has ever seen unless it's from an artist that is famous Um, and so I think we're kind of misconstruing the whole point of NFTs which is to get as much mainstream uh, kind of eyeballs on your work and that makes everybody's nft in that collection more valuable you're saying social clout not ownership but michael let's let's hear your response to yeah, this yeah let me push back on this for a second uh to play devil's advocate here so when board Ape yacht club flipped CryptoPunks in december of 2021 as the number one project by market cap one thing at that moment became imminently clear that the nft market values commercial rights that was the primary reason why BAYC took over CryptoPunks, or one of the primary reasons. And the reason why that was so important was because these 
NFTs were seen as property that was owned. The content was owned by the by the uh, the NFT holders and that they could commercialize it. Now, that wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have been meaningful if commercial rights weren't a thing. In fact, the main justification for Board Ape Yacht Club, uh, uh, for Yuga Labs buying CryptoPunk's IP was to grant uh, CryptoPunk holders and MeBips holders commercial rights, which they didn't have under the uh, nifty license that previously governed the CryptoPunks and MeBits uh, NFTs. And in fact, you know, uh, the the actual, the previous, uh, the previous agreement that governed CryptoPunks and MeBits was actually pretty clear as the nifty license. The problem with that was that it didn't provide commercial rights to their holders, whereas uh, Board Ape Yacht Club did. Now, if you care about commercial rights, you have to care about copyright because commercial rights don't mean much if the copyright holder can revoke those rights from you upon you actually utilizing those commercial rights. And so unless you want to say that people actually don't care about commercial rights and Which therefore they don't. Jenkins the... Well, I mean, <laughs> if they don't, then, it, then it's inexplicable why Board Ape Yacht Club... I, I can explain uh, it. Overtook... Yeah. yeah, I mean, my view on that whole thing when they flipped, it has nothing to do with, with copyright. Because if you actually give me an example of someone successfully commercializing their board ape in the fall. I mean, it's, it's only barely happening now um, with Seth Green's show. There's like that one fast food restaurant. Um, and then on the punk side, there's Tiffany's. You know, 100 people got to make a pendant. Uh, but Bored and Hungry is a great name for a, for a fast food <laughs> restaurant, by the way. We've got to give that guy props on that. Here's the real reason why Bored Apes flipped CryptoPunks, which is a great story and a great point. And I, I like that you brought it up. Central planning. It's because Yuga Labs knows how to do business development. They know how to market and they know how to get partnerships and they know how to get celebrities engaged with their collections. It drove a lot of demand and interest because they people started seeing monkeys everywhere on Twitter and whatever social media channel that Steph Curry had it on his sneaker. Uh, Eminem bought one, so on and so forth. That's all central planning thanks to Yuga. That's what drove the demand. And the idea here is that Yuga is incentivized to push collections on behalf of their constituents if they own the IP. If they don't own it, then what does Yuga Labs actually own? What, where is their value coming from? Um, is it tech? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I mean, the metaverse is pretty cool that they're building, other side. But a lot of it's the IP. And they actually need to own it in order to have a strong enough incentive uh, to return value to their shareholders, to distribute and push these collections hard. And they bought CryptoPunks so that they can add it to their roadmap and give utility for punks holders, which they did not have any hope of with Larva Labs' involvement because they basically just put it on the back burner. The express tweet that Yuga Labs issued when they bought the IP of CryptoPunks and MeBits was that they are now going to be able to provide commercial rights to CryptoPunks holders for the first time. We don't have to, there are many reasons why Bored Apes flipped CryptoPunks. However, I don't think it's uh, fair to say that the market doesn't care about commercial rights. But I think this is a little bit besides the point, right? Because the real value of copyright is in the protection afforded to you going forward that the image that is uh, that is that corresponds to your NFT will be there in the future, that it won't be diluted, and that you can enforce that image against other people uh, who try to uh, infringe on it. So why own a, a Board Ape Yacht Club NFT if someone else can just right-click save it and put it up on Board and Hungry or any other store um, and to use it and to commercialize it. If the board in Hungary, own, the owner of the board ape that corresponds to the board in Hungary uh, logo can't enforce that directly, right? So I do think, taking a step back from just the, the legal argument about copyright, the, the, this is a real question about control over the direction of the assets that you pay potentially millions of dollars for. To me, I mean, I, 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 I hear Saul's point. I do think a lot of the enthusiasm around these collections has been social clout. Um, and, 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 but it, without ownership, <laughs> without any kind of durable protection, it's not just ownership. They can straight up just rug it from you if they don't like you. If someone who buys an ape is an objectionable person, they can rug it and, and delete the image or, you know, or, or even revoke your right to use it anywhere, right? They can literally revoke your right to even use the image, even on your own social media. Um, 
that that I think is is a big problem. Or they could sell the entire collection to Disney. Yeah, I think for NFT holders, not caring about the copyright matters until it's too late. When you look at the the whole Moonbirds scenario, I mean, if you ask that community, you know, if they could go back in time to wish that they owned the copyright, I'm sure every one of them would say yes because, you know, just for for background, Moonbirds um, switched their license to a CCO. And um, that was a decision made internally. The community had no vote on it. Um, and, um, you know, listening to the Twitter space after the day of the announcement, you know, the community was very upset. And you can see why, because under a CCO, essentially the copyright and all the IP rights becomes open source. Um, and a story I want to tell from the Twitter space kind of just like puts this um, in greater detail. So there was a Moonbirds holder who had the most rare Moonbird. He was in the process of licensing out his Moonbird to a brand. And then the day the announcement came that Moon's, Moonbirds was switching their license, the brand pulled out of the deal because they knew that this Moonbird image of this rare one was going to be open source now. Um, and if I had to guess, I'm sure that individual wish he owned the copyright to you know, proceed with that license with that brand. Yeah, I I'm heard sure. I heard that complaint on the spaces, right? right? So he was he was rugged. <laughs> he was yeah, he was rugged and I, I think, you know, that that's the thing too is a lot of these holders don't really understand in the, for ones who want to commercialize their NFT like how important it is to to actually have the copyright because essentially if you don't have the copyright, the actual holders who are always the project, they can always change the license and you know, you could wake up one morning and your six, seven figure NFT is now open source completely. And you, you know, you have no vote on that. And that's, you got to live with that. And the, the Moonbirds floor went down like oh. 20 or 30% almost immediately down. upon this announcement. And it's still yeah. going down. And, and just as an example, while we're talking about Moonbirds, I just want to point out that like this one, I think of the ones we looked at was perhaps the most egregious in terms of the marketing materials having a major discrepancy with the underlying license until Monday of last week, uh, a few days after they announced the change from their sort of, uh, you know, restrictive commercial use license to the CCO until then the whole time since April of 2022, when that project first minted their website said point blank, you own the IP right there in an image. Um, and that was never true. That wasn't true. If you, the same time you read that, you scroll to the very bottom of the page and click, click terms of service. It expressly said you didn't own the IP and they granted you a normal license for commercial use like many other projects. So it wasn't true then. And then when they moved to the CCO, it also isn't true because now essentially the IP is part of the public domain. So you again, don't own the IP. Um, and that was the most egregious of the, of the misleading uh, statements we saw from issuers again, leaving aside the more philosophical debate we're having about ownership. Just that that one was worth pointing out. That's in our report as well. Alex, you and I tonight, you and I tonight could right click save every single Moonbird and then mint a new ten thousand collection of those exact same images, and there would be no Moonbird holder that could sue us. Rider Rips, for example, what Rider Rips is doing uh, with respect to Board Ape Yacht Club. If he did that with Moonbirds, there is nothing that Moonbirds, either Proof, the uh, parent company, or the Moonbirds holders could do. Now, if you spend 50 grand on a Moonbird and then some other dude mints one and sports it as his profile picture, I mean, to me, it seems like that uh, that totally undermines the 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 utility and and the the relevance of why anyone would buy an NFT. Now. I just want to say one other thing, which is that it doesn't need to be this way, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of NFTs, but I think NFTs, if they're purporting to sell unique one-of-one -one images that only you have rarity traits, right? The whole concept of rarity traits makes no sense because you don't own those rarity traits. You own a token and the parent company owns the rarity traits. But if you're buying an expensive NFT because of rarity traits, you should own that image. Um, forget copyright. Copyright is just a term used to describe ownership of digital content, right? The question is, if an NFT is a composite of one, a token, and two, an image, 
on what planet would you say, oh, I'm cool with just owning the token, but uh, having no rights at all to the image? That makes no sense. No <laughs> one would agree to that. Right. Uh, I don't know. Let's make a quick analogy. And maybe this is too crude, but Manhattan real estate is really valuable. I think everyone can agree with that. And if you buy a giant um, house that takes up a whole block in the Upper West Side or something, and you buy and you, you don't technically own the land, right? It's ownership of land in a country like the U.S. is kind of like a license. You have to pay property taxes, and the moment you don't, it's not really yours anymore. Um, and the U.S. also is kind of a, a country that I don't know. It's not guaranteed to exist forever. So I mean, what are you really buying at the end of the day? I think this concept of ownership in and of itself, um, I think we might be kind of focusing too much on Sal, you, you own the land you own the land and you also own the air rights um you own the the right you don't own the, the entire the air rights i mean you own up to a certain extent no there are there are restrictions there are but but you do own the land but it's true there are some caveats you here. own the land as long but as actually, you're a tax-paying good... citizen and in compliance with all the laws and regulations and you don't fall various other stuff victim yeah. to eminent domain i mean but but I can, I think I I'm willing to accept your analogy here, Saul. But I think it's a good transition into the Web three sort of future question because, yes, you are subject to the feudal ownership of your you know, state, local, and national government when you own property in a country. Those property rights are an important, important legal concept, right? And they're they're bad in some places, and they're way better in others, right? They're way better in the United States than they are in a, in a lot of like you know emerging economies, for example. They're better, though, because they're legally enforceable, because you do own the, the actual deed to the property, which is similar to owning the copyright in this instance. And the question is, when if we are moving into a much more metaverse world, what do we want? Do we want Yuga Labs to be like the U.S. government or do we want to actually have more durable um, you know, more durable ownership over the things that, that exist in that world. We do want them yeah, I mean, to be the, like the U.S. Uh, government. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think the, we're the getting a little idealistic here, guys. It's not about just everything decentralized to an extreme. It's about community. Like, again, land is valuable in New York City because a lot of people live here. There's a lot of culture, right? The same can be said of board apes. I don't buy an ape so that I own the IP forever. I buy it because a lot of really important people, successful people, celebrities, they own it. That's the sole reason. I get access to that community. So if you make a 10,000... But there's no guarantee, though, that your access persists. I mean, that's the, token, the issue. The token, they You're can't spend a lot of... The token doesn't go yeah, away. The, I have full custody over the token, right? But, as long yeah, as but in, the, in, the, in the other side metaverse, they can make your character appear as a black box. That's the other side, though. I mean, I still own the token. and they, they Forget the carrot. Forget the other side. They can rug the image right out of IPFS. It's not about the image, though. I but, Saul, you're not getting your social clout by sending someone an address on Etherscan. <laughs> you're getting it by displaying a cryptographically so, verified token no, no, no. Here, that has an image. You asked about the future, right? The future of Web3, one thing that we talk about a lot is the idea of token-gated communities and applications. And they can never just delete the token. That's on-chain forever, and it's in my wallet forever. They can mess with the image, you're right. Maybe they can rug me and block me from certain projects that recognize my address or my asset. But a developer can always make an application that recognizes, yes, you have owned this ape since 2020. And I can always get access. I mean, apes have, were invented in 2021, whatever. The, the original year it was invented. Right. That is why I have an ape. That's why I have a CryptoPunk. I have one of the first NFTs. It's a, as long as it's in my wallet, I have it forever. And people can recognize that on chain. It's like the history of your record, like the record of purchase, like the, the going, being able to verifiably cryptographically say the sole owner of this token is this address and this address belongs to me because I have the private keys. I'm able to move this token from here to here. And you can, here's like the history of where this token yeah. went. Imagine you buy a Picasso and instead of getting the Picasso delivered to your house, they deliver you a, a certificate of ownership that you own the Picasso. But you uh, don't actually, uh, but the Picasso estate retains the actual painting of the Picasso. That is sort of what we're seeing in the NFT space. Now, what I, I want to be very clear about the analogy to New York City real estate. 
there is it, because you own something doesn't necessarily mean that the government can't take it away under certain conditions, but the government must abide by certain constitutional protections like due process. Right now, that doesn't apply to private actors. Right. So when we move into the metaverse space, if um, the, the, the land, the world, the, the space in which we spend this increasing amount of our time, if the if the uh, property in that space is not fully owned by us. We're looking at a dystopian nightmare in which we have fewer ownership rights in that space relative to the real world, relative to buying, you know, Nike sneakers. You have those sneakers. You own them. Um, if you buy a, an NFT of a Nike sneaker, you don't own the image. And therefore, you don't really have any right to exclude others from using that image. Only Nike does. And the, and the last thing on this is just, Sal, like I hear what you're saying, and the it's a very standard response from ape holders, which is I didn't buy the ape for the, the art, I bought the ape for the membership. And that's fair. But what in all else considered considered, wouldn't you want control over the image? Wouldn't you want like ownership over the image such that Yuga Labs, when they sold you that NFT, they relinquished at least some, if not all, of their rights over that image and what the direction in which they could take that image to you so that you were not constantly at the mercy of a for-profit company um, being able to dictate the, the future of that image um, and the sale of that image to other projects or to Disney, for example. So here's the thing. I want them to own it because I, they do a great job of promoting my stuff. They're, but they're not going to lose the... So here's a here's a big misconception. Bored Apes would still own the general likeness of apes, right? They just right. wouldn't own the specific attributes contained within your ape. They would still be able to make new apes. They would still be able, and by the way, there's a lot of different ways they could do this. So one such method is what's called a sale leaseback. So what I would propose um, to, to actually, I would love this to be the market standard in NFTs going forward is when you buy an NFT, they sell you the copyright subject to a leaseback in which the project leases back the image from you so that they can use it for commercial purposes. So you flipped the relationship between the project and the purchaser such that the purchaser now owns the content and that the project is leasing it back to you. That was actually in the new uh, Punks license, actually. Um, it the said sale that lease one? Not, not exactly that, but essentially the Punk owners um, give Yuga the license to use any Punk for promotional or advertising um, use cases. Yes. That, but that's on a sale leaseback only because they didn't sell the copyright, right. but I agree that that is closer to it. I think what's interesting about the CryptoPunks license that they just released is that it is really like the same. It's, it's really not much of a step forward in this, except that it very crystal clear clarifies that Yuga Labs owns the IP. And if you right. think about it for a second, if you think about it for one second, the the big businesses, big uh, companies, you know, uh, Yuga Labs and Disney and the and the like, they're playing a different game than we're playing, folks. Retail consumers, we get the short end of the stick. When Yuga wants to buy NFTs, they buy the copyright, right? When we buy NFTs, we buy a token with a limited license to display it and maybe to commercialize it under certain circumstances, all of which are revocable by the parent company, right? That was supposed to be... The, the entire issue with Web 2 and what Web 3, specifically with NFTs, was meant to fix. And unfortunately, we've fallen right back victim into that entire uh, regime. Let's call out World of Women for attempting to do this well. Um, and, and I mean that they actually, their license agreement is actually an IP assignment agreement um, tr that, that assigns the IP to the purchaser of it, of the NFT. I think let's just we've had this, this is a great debate, by the way, but let's talk a little bit about um, I like the the sale leaseback is interesting. There's also this idea that um, an IP assignment agreement, which is what's required to actually transfer IP under U.S. law. Right, Michael? Yep. Um, what are the problems with the world of women's attempt at this, you know, as you know, honorable and noble as it was? So, like, the first thing exactly right. The first thing I want to say is I want to commend world of women. Um, they they came up with a very innovative concept. The problem is they came up with it in a Web2 context. So what they did was they just, instead of putting a license on their website like Yuga Labs or Chiru Labs or all the other projects, 
they didn't put a license per se. It's a form of a license, but it's it's a two-part thing. It is an actual assignment agreement in which they are selling the ownership of the image to the holders of World of Women. And then there's some licensing parts about the uh, specific uh, uh, constitutive elements of the World of Women uh, uh, traits. However, there's a big problem with this. And the problem is that you need under U.S. law in order to assign copyright, you need to have a signed instrument. Now, one could argue that by virtue of clicking yes on MetaMask, you agreed to this, that, and the other mm-hmm. thing. And maybe a cryptographic that- signature might be enough, but but that's in, that's novel though. That's a novel idea. It's not it's not established. Well, well, it's like saying that Seth Green actually agreed to get his uh his ape stolen because he signed the transaction, even though it was right. on. It was on a different premise, right? So, like, if you if you didn't even read the IP assignment agreement and the MetaMask signature has nothing to do with it, it would be very unlikely to be upheld in court. But let's assume that um, the the IP assignment agreement is upholdable and that the judge says, yeah, okay, but, like, because it's online, they can't really sign it and that the intent of the parties was to assign the IP, so we're going to effectuate that. Here's the problem. The World of Women uh, IP assignment agreement uh, – really only applies to the the people who minted the NFTs. Why? Because the second that the mint happens, the IP, the copyright of the image, goes from the World of Women group to the minter. And now the minter owns the copyright. Now, the minter is technically, quote unquote, bound by the terms and conditions of this IP assignment agreement. But what happens to the the third purchaser, the fourth purchaser, right? There is no privity, what's called contractual privity, which means a relationship between the contracting party to the other party. Uh, There is no privity anymore between World of Women and the third purchaser of a resale of World of Women such that you can't enforce between secondary purchaser and tertiary purchaser, you can't enforce the assignment Anymore. Right. So, there's no way. There's no way for me to transfer. Um, well, there's no logistical way for me to actually transfer the IP assignment agreement that they wrote to you as the secondary purchaser. Um, and that's an I, place where we actually also have ideas. But functionally speaking, I could mint a World of Women NFT and then sell it to Michael or Gabe or Saul or Christine, you know, through OpenSea, but not do any type of IP assignment whatsoever. And then later I could say, oh, I still own the IP. I sold you the token, but I own the IP still because I never assigned it to you. Um, and so what what ideas, I like the sale lease back. That's interesting. But you know, one of the other criticisms we had in this report was that OpenSea and other NFT marketplaces, they don't surface or make these license agreements anywhere really visible to, to the purchasers at all. Right, you got to go to the collections page on OpenSea, then go to their website, and then hope that on the website you could find it. When in reality, a big part of what you're actually buying is a license agreement of some type, right? And so, what what if they like put the license agreement text like in in the NFT? Is that a possibility? Like literally in the token, so that when I sold you the token, the agreement moved with it. Is that enough? Yes. So one idea that I had been uh, working on over the last couple of months, just in my free time, is if we embedded the World of Women IP assignment agreement into the smart contract, and we pretty simply put some functionality in the smart contract, additional functionality that when you clicked "I agree" um, to you know sync your your wallet, and then "I agree again" or sign the transaction to actually buy the the uh, the World of Women. In addition to the standard signature content, the text in the MetaMask, there was an additional thing, which is you agree to the terms of the IP assignment agreement. That would be effective. That would actually be an effective assignment. Now, the cool thing about this idea, if you actually embedded it within the smart contract, is that process would take place upon every transfer. So just to be clear about the the the, the shortfall on the World of Women IP assignment agreement, the, that IP assignment agreement purports to say that every transfer is an assignment of IP. But of course, they're the ones that promulgate that IP assignment agreement. And once the, uh, the, the transfer happens to person one, they have no more rights to enforce that agreement because they don't own the copyright anymore. But with a smart contract as mediator, 
every subsequent sale would impose those terms and conditions mm -hmm. on the next purchaser. And so Web3 is actually the solution here, which is pretty crazy to think about. They, the, a smart contract could assign to every single purchaser IP, the IP, the, the copyright of the image, and then you would own the entire NFT, not just the token. I think that makes sense. I want to add a couple comments because uh, in terms of where, where it's going in the future, I think you're you're spot on with uh, embedding things on chain. It seems like it's it's not going to be relying on legacy legal infrastructure and legacy Web two infrastructure. You know, in the long run, it's going to come down to one getting legal contracts on chain and two getting enforcement of contracts to work on chain. Now, the second is definitely a lot harder than the first. But to your points about uh, enforcing property rights in the metaverse and, and even issuance of NFT collections in and of themselves. Right now they're done by corporations that raise equity rounds uh, like Yuga Labs. It's going to be DAOs in the future and they're going to be owned by communities of token holders that hold the rights that might exercise on these rights. And it's going to be maybe DAOs even transferring IP or enforcing legal action uh, for anyone infringing on IP owned by the DAO. That's kind of how I see things materializing in the long run, which might solve a lot of these issues we're talking about. Um, how we get there, uh, definitely a lot of work to be done now. Yeah, I think I, I'm just concerned that if we don't get this done, that the these crypto-enabled metaverses, whether it's Decentraland or Sandbox or other side, are going to look a lot like the the Facebook, you know, Meta's metaverse, where you own nothing and you'll be happy. Yep. And and that's what I want to avoid. I think. You know, it first has to start with the small steps. So cleaning up the language for most of these license agreements so everyday people, you know, can just understand them. Um, and also, too, an idea that I've seen floating around is just to begin to standardize these license agreements. Um, one thing I noticed after reviewing the top 25 projects license agreements is there's a lot of variability with them. You know, some of them have a hundred K limit on revenue. Some have 500 K. Some of them, you know, you can, you have unlimited, um, commercial use as long as you're not a competitor. Um, so I think we need to find a way to standardize, uh, these license that these projects projects are giving out. Um, an example is the nifty license, um, which has a set of rules that all projects have to abide to and essentially you can't alter the nifty license because if you do you can't define that license as a nifty license um, so that's a that, that's a first step but you know i think it, it really starts with just educating the nft community on this matter although you know some people might not might not think this is a large issue now you know the whole point is you know, we need to just address these issues before mainstream adoption happens because we're really early with NFTs, super early. Um, and if we can knock out these problems now, uh, I think it would just benefit everyone in the future. You know, I mean, not having any clarity on ownership, it, it doesn't help anybody. And, and I think it will limit the growth of NFTs. And if we all really believe in the technology of it and the ethos of it, um, it's, you know, these small things definitely need to be worked out now before things get really global. Yeah. And, and just to piggyback on that, I think all of us here hope for the day when there is an on-chain Uber, an on-chain Airbnb. All of the different Web2 companies have been displaced by Web3 decentralized applications. But if we do not get the contracting piece on-chain, then what? no matter what you put on-chain, if you have to sign a Web2 contract, right? Like Uber drivers, in, in any world in which they're on chain, they're going to have to sign some agreements, right? Um, in that world, if they have to sign some Web2 agreement, that's going to really impede the growth of, of Web3. But I think the other thing that this highlights is the tremendous functionality and efficiency that comes with on-chain legal agreements. And the NFT space is a perfect launchpad for that because the costs are relatively low, right? If you were able to do what I described here in this in this talk with a IP assignment on chain, you would effectively be the first person to transfer copyright by way of a smart contract um, on chain, which would be a tremendous precedent for transferring a whole host of different rights going forward. Great discussion. Um, I know there's a lot to think about here. I think it's so interesting, the, the sort of different 
um, you know, the sort of different things that people value. I do think it is an immaturity. This is me personally of the NFT collectors today to not care about it. Luckily, more and more are caring about it. I think Moonbirds and Punks um, updating their licenses brought a lot more attention to this issue. Um, but I think no matter what, these projects are the, you know, there's those are the two arguments. That's the first one, right? That a Web3 future requires um, ownership and licensing to be at very least transparent, but ideally transferred to token holders. But the other thing that we cover at length is just an absolute disparity between the marketing and the the reality of the legal arrangements between so many issuers and token holders in this space. Um, that has to stop. If you're not transferring IP, you cannot say when you buy a, uh, an ape, you own the art completely. That is, that's false. Um, and that's something we really hope. Or maybe that's the first step. And then the second step is clean up the agreements, like Gabe said. And then the third step is get somewhere where we have these uh, ownership rights codified and enforceable and transferable on chain. Um, but there's clearly a lot of work left to do. Um, Michael, thank you so much for being here. Gabe, thank you for being here. Everyone check out that report. We released it this morning. You can see it on galaxy.com slash research. Um, Saul Kadir and Christine Kim from Galaxy Research. Also, thank you for joining us. As always, I'm Alex Thorne, your host. This was Galaxy Brains. Uh, catch us next week um, and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed the show, please like, rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about the work we do at Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content online at galaxy.com research and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. That's all for today. See you next time.